I have a message for us from 1 Samuel chapter 20. So if you have your Bibles, you can open there to 1 Samuel chapter 20. Now we, we do have a couple more messages left in our series on worship that we'll get to in a couple of weeks. But this week, this coming week, in fact, starting tomorrow, I am attending a preaching workshop where I go and get additional training. How many of you at your job, you have ongoing training that you do periodically? And it, it helps you to stay up to date and sharp and, you know, sometimes over time, uh, certain things that you know kind of fall off and you just need to remind yourselves of certain key things and uh, to keep yourself sharp in the work that you do. And uh, I'm, to, I'm, I'm attending a workshop, a preaching workshop here in town, uh, three days on preaching. And part of this workshop is I had to prepare two sermons from 1 Samuel. We're using the book of 1 Samuel in this workshop. And then I have to go and present my material to this group of preachers that are going to critique the sermon that I prepared. So this week, in addition to preparing Sunday morning, I also prepared two extra, and I just didn't have time to prepare four sermons this week. And so I figured, you know what? It's the Word of God. And so we're just going to jump into 1 Samuel chapter 20 tonight. And uh, hopefully I don't have to rewrite this before I have to present it tomorrow. Hopefully... Uh, you could give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down as, as far as how you think it'll go when I have to show my work uh, tomorrow on 1 Samuel chapter 20. So uh, that, that's a little bit why we're, we're just pausing from uh, the series. And in fact, uh, Pastor Mark is attending the same workshop and he'll have a 1 Samuel sermon for us next Sunday night as well. So uh, we're going to get all the mileage out of this that uh, we can. So... Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 20. And let me just give you a, a little bit of a recap because this is here in the, in the middle of the book just so that you know where we're at. Then we'll read the text and we'll unpack it together. You'll recall that God delivered the children of Israel uh, from the land of Egypt through Moses, this incredible work of deliverance, this picture of salvation God led them into the land that he had promised to Abraham. He delivered that land to his people. That was through the ministry of Joshua. Joshua went in and the children of Israel went in and they took possession of what God had promised to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And after jo uh, Joshua went off the scene, the people of Israel began to go back and forth in seasons and in times of being faithful to God and then being unfaithful to God. And when they would be unfaithful to God, there would become, the, the, the nation would go into decline, the, the economy would fall out. When, when people don't live under God's rule, bad things happen. And the story of the people of Israel is, is that they would go through seasons of submitting to God and worshiping the Lord, and then they would drift off into idolatry and paganism and bondage. And eventually they would cry out to God for deliverance, and God would raise up a deliverer, someone who would judge the nation, who would bring God's word and God's law and, and deliver God's people and then reestablish right worship. And we read about that in the book of Judges. 
And the book of 1 Samuel happens at the tail end of that season of judges that were raised up and brought deliverance to Israel. And really the last judge is the prophet Samuel. And Samuel oversees this transition from the period of judges to the period of kings. And under, under Samuel, God had chosen a king, King Saul, who, who would uh, basically rule the nation. And he, his job was to rule the nation under God's law, to execute justice according to the word of God. And so the first king that we read about in the book of Samuel, after the, the prophet Samuel anointed this king, is King Saul. He is the first king of Israel. King Saul had a son named Jonathan. And, and when he first became king, he, he was faithful to the Lord. And God used him in a mighty way to deliver the nation from the oppression that they were under, the Philistines. But over time, his heart turned away from God, became puffed up with pride, and he rebelled against God. We read about that in, in 1 Samuel chapter 15. He disobeyed God. He disobeyed God's word. He refused to submit to God, and therefore, God rejected Saul. In chapter 16, God chooses a new king, and that king is David. And so Samuel, God sends Samuel to go and anoint David as the next king of Israel. And now this sets up conflict between David, who's anointed to be the next king of Israel, and Saul, who is the present king of Israel, who is rebelling against God. And typically the way a kingdom works is that the, the, the son of the king is the one who becomes the next king. And so now we have Saul and Jonathan, his son, and then David. And David and Jonathan, we find out, actually become very close friends. So this is a, a, a strange thing because David is now friends with the person who should, in man's eyes, take over the kingdom. And certainly in Saul's eyes, the kingdom should be handed down to Jonathan. But God has said that the kingdom will go to David. Well, shortly on the heels of that, David goes and defeats Goliath. This very public display of God's hand and anointing being on David as this giant is defeated and the Philistines are defeated, not under Saul and Jonathan, but rather under the new anointed one, David. Now Saul becomes jealous of David. David begins winning all of these battles. David begins winning all of these, doing all of the, the work, really, that the king should be doing. But, of course, David is doing it under Saul. And so Saul is the one who is benefiting from what David is doing, but Saul becomes so jealous of David. All the while, this friendship is developing between David and Jonathan. They even make a covenant together. We read about that in chapter 18 of, of 1 Samuel, this covenant between David and Jonathan to, to basically, they promised for the rest of their lives that they would have each other's back. Well, in chapter 19, Saul becomes so jealous of David, he tries to kill him. 
While they're there eating dinner one evening, David is playing the harp, and Saul takes his javelin and throws it at David to kill him, his spear. David jumps out of the way, and the javelin pins itself against the wall. He threw it with such force. And David runs, and he escapes, and he sneaks out of the city in the middle of the night. That's how... First uh, Samuel chapter 19 goes, David has gone into hiding because Saul is seeking to kill him. And that's where we pick up the story here in First Samuel chapter 20. And this is a story between now David and Jonathan, the son of Saul, and Saul himself. And this story is broken into three parts. And I, I want to just read the story for us in its entirety tonight so you can can, can see some very important things that I want to show you. And I just want you, and I, I know we've, on Sunday mornings, we've been looking at shorter chunks of text as we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount. Tonight we're going to look at a longer chunk of text, but I think this story will be captivating for you. And it says that David fled, and he came and said before Jonathan, what have I done, and what is my guilt? So he's now in hiding Jonathan goes and seeks him out and finds him. And David says, what have I done? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Something else that's also happened in this story is David has been given Saul's daughter in marriage. So not only is David close to Jonathan as a brother, but he's literally Saul's son-in-law. Jonathan's brother-in-law, they are family. What have I done, he says? What is my sin that your father is trying to kill me? And Jonathan said to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without telling me first. And why, why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. What we actually see is earlier that Saul had lied to Jonathan and convinced Jonathan that he had no ill will to David. And so Jonathan has believed his father's lies. He's believed his father's deception. He says, no, absolutely not. My, my father has promised me that he is not seeking your life. Verse 3, it says, David vowed again, saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. So David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go that I might hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. So there's this new moon banquet, and David's supposed to be there. David says, I'm not going to go. I'm going to hide out. And, and tell me how your father responds when I'm not there. He says, if your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. That's David's hometown. For there is a yearly sacrifice there for all of his clan. And if Saul says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that I 
that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? Jonathan said, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, is a witness between us right now. He is witnessing what we're about to do. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if it is well disposed towards David, shall not then I send and disclose it to you. But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety and may the Lord be with you. As he has been with my father, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I might not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan and David come up with a, a plan that if a, a secret code for, for how he's going to communicate this, and he says, look, when I come back in three days... I'm going to shoot some arrows. And if I, if I say to my servant that the arrows went too far, then you know that my father is trying to harm you. But if I say to my servant, no, they're closer, then you know that everything is okay. And so they come up with this plan, and then the feast comes. And here we see in verse 24, as David hides himself in the field... When the new moon came, the king sat down to eat his food. And the king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite him, so at the other end of the table. And Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him you know, maybe the traffic in Jerusalem was really bad. There was a pileup of camels or something. <laughs> something has happened to him. Maybe, so he says, maybe he's unclean. He's not ceremonially clean to come and eat. Surely he is not clean. So verse 27, it says, but on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? So this is going just as David and Jonathan had planned. Jonathan answered Saul. He tells his father Saul what David told them to tell him. David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go for our clan, our family holds a sacrifice in the city. And my brother has asked me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me go away and see my brothers. 
For this reason, David has not come to the king's table. Verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. We have a phrase for that in English. This is the Hebrew translation. This is the Bible's way of saying this. It's, it's the truth. I mean, it's, it's, the Bible is real life. You have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness. Basically, you're exposing your family by this. You're embarrassing your family. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he surely shall die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Verse 33, but Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow, Jonathan, to the arrow Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. And the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace. Because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. This is the last time that Jonathan and David, that we know of, will see one another. They were so close friends, but yet they were put at odds because of Saul and Saul's desire to destroy David, really for Saul's own glory. Saul says to Jonathan that, Jonathan, your kingdom won't be established as long as David is alive, but we know full well that it's not Jonathan's kingdom that Saul's concerned about. How do we know this? Well, because two seconds later, Saul is hurling a spear at Jonathan. Saul is concerned about his legacy. Saul is concerned about his glory. 
Saul knows full well that if something happens to Jonathan, he can raise up another son who will continue on the house and the kingdom of Saul. But you see, the kings of Israel were not to reign over their own kingdom, but they were to reign over the kingdom of God. What that means is that God was to be king over the king. That his word was to be over their words. And I want to show you from this passage that there is a a stark contrast here between the behavior of David and Jonathan and the behavior of Saul. And the first we see here is that David and Jonathan are faithful to one another as they submit to God. They're faithful to one another and they're faithful to God in submission to God. We see this here as they, they say the Lord is witnessing this. The Lord is watching this. The, the Lord's eyes are, are seeing the promise that we are making to one another. And if I break it or if you break it, God will judge us for the covenant that we've made. And he will judge us if we break this covenant. He says, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness between us. And so David and Jonathan understand that God is above them, that God is ruling over them, that that they are not sovereign unto themselves, but that God is the sovereign and they are under him and his rule and his authority. And so therefore their relationships and how they live their lives are governed not by their own uh, self-preservation, but by the glory of God and God's word. You see, it would have been very easy for Jonathan to have found out, okay, I'm at odds now with my father because of David, and Jonathan could have very easily shown up and killed David that day and broken his covenant. But he says, no, I made a covenant, and God witnessed this covenant. And so we are living in faithful submission to God. God is the witness. And so we see that they were faithful to one another and that they were faithful to the Lord. And we see many examples of this, not only in this passage, but also in the rest of of this story that transpires. As the story continues, David's going to be hunted by Saul. David now leaves this place and he goes on the run. He is a fugitive. And Saul begins scouring the countryside, searching for David, trying to kill David. He becomes a madman in his pursuit of David, forsaking even governing his own kingdom to try and kill David. And twice in his pursuit, God delivers Saul into David's hands. Twice David is hiding in a cave. I mean, think about it. Think of if you were hiding out in a cave in the hill country, hiding from someone who's searching for you. All of the hills, all of the places, Kerrville, Fredericksburg, all up in there. And you're hiding in a cave, and in walks Saul by himself to take a nap. Well, the Bible says actually to relieve himself, but we'll just say take a nap for... uh, yeah, to, just to, to take a load off. We'll put it that way. So, so he goes into the cave and David is further back in the cave. Saul is by himself 
taking care of business. And, and David's men say, look at this. The Lord has delivered Saul into your hands. He's delivered your enemy into your hands. Strike him down while he is unarmed. David sneaks up behind him. And while Saul's there taking a nap, doing whatever, he cuts off a piece of Saul's robe. Saul leaves the cave. He doesn't know Saul leaves the cave. And as Saul leaves the cave, David goes and he calls out and he says, Saul! Saul says, who, who is it? David says, it's your servant David, my king. He says, look at this. Look at what I have. It's a piece of your robe. I could have killed you, but I didn't kill you. I'm not your enemy. And it says that David was, was even convicted in his heart that he had even touched the hem of Saul's robe. Because he said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. Those whom God has put into authority, I will not touch. That story happens twice that God delivers Saul into David's hands and David doesn't take action. Why? Because David was under the rule and reign of God. David was a man of covenant faithfulness. He lived a life of faithfulness in submission to God. We see two examples of that with Saul. Later on, much later in the story in the book of 2 Samuel, Saul is killed, Jonathan is killed, David becomes king as God had promised. And one of the first things that David does when he becomes king is he says... Are there any of Saul's descendants that are still alive? Now, this wasn't uncommon for a king to do in those days because typically what a king would do is if, if he came to power after taking out another king, he would find all of the descendants of the previous king and take them out, take out all the threats to his throne. But David finds out that there's another king, that there's another son, a grandson of Saul, a son of Jonathan, a man named Mephibosheth, good luck saying that, Mephibosheth, who is crippled. He, he was dropped as a child. His legs were broken. He is a cripple, and he's living in poverty. David finds out about this son of Jonathan, and he goes and he takes this son of Jonathan who's living in poverty, and he restores to Jonathan all of the land that belonged to King Saul's family. He restores him to Mephibosheth, all of that land. And he brings Mephibosheth in and he says, here, you sit at the king's table. You're eating at the king's table. And he did it because of the covenant that he made with Jonathan years and years and years ago. Where he said, I will take care. I will watch over. I will bless the descendants of Jonathan's house. We see that Jonathan was faithful with David in submission to God. We see that David was faithful with Saul in submission to God. And even David faithful with the descendants of Jonathan. Again, in submission to God and to God's word. And this contrast is, is here in this passage between those who are in submission to God and those who are not. Those who are faithful to God and one another and those who are not and so here now we begin to see the unfaithfulness of Saul painted so clearly for us. And this unfaithfulness is exercised, is expressed in rebellion against God. 
God who had promised that the next king would be David, Saul is doing everything that he can to make sure that that doesn't happen. He's living not under the rule and reign of God, but in rebellion against God. And here we see Saul's unfaithfulness. And what this produces in Saul is a downward spiral. A downward spiral. And what we can be sure of is that when we live in rebellion against God and his word, that we are on the track of a downward spiral in our lives. That, that our lives are headed to destruction. We see that Saul, he, he loses his mind. He, 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 he's trying to, he's so blinded by his hatred for David that he will take out anybody who's faithful to David including his own son. And that's what the writer of Samuel is trying to show us is, is the insanity that comes from rebelling against God. Trying to take out his own son. We see this spiral start again in 1, Corinthians, 1 Samuel 15 where Saul rebels against God and he, he will not take out the Amalekites. He, he leaves the king and some of the other people and the animals and he takes the spoil for himself. He rebels against God with the Amalekites. We see that he's unfaithful as he tries to kill David as he goes and begins to hunt him throughout the countryside. And at the final, in the end of Saul's life, Saul does something that is so dark as he goes and he consults with a medium, a witch. He begins seeking out the, the dark arts, the people who practice the occult, the, the downward spiral of Saul, and it finally ends with Saul being defeated in battle. And it all started, this downward spiral, when he disobeyed God. And it started so small. It seemed like a little thing. Well, yeah, I, I did most of what God told me to do. But he disobeyed God and it put him on a path, a downward spiral. Saul's unfaithfulness and rebellion against God. But I want you to see from, from 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel that it's not just Saul who was unfaithful. After David becomes king, we know full well David himself becomes unfaithful. David himself sins with Bathsheba, the, the wife of one of his closest friends, a man named Uriah. When he sins with Bathsheba and it's found that she is pregnant, he concocts a scheme to try and cover his sin, but it doesn't work. And so instead of having his sin exposed, he sends one of his best friends, his, one of his most faithful men, Uriah, and he has him put on the front lines of the battle so that he will be killed by the enemy. So not only does David commit adultery, but David, by the hands of his army, commits murder. Of course, his sin is found out, and David repents. But David was not this shining example of faithfulness all the time. He also was a man who sinned. He overlooked his own son's sin. That led to his, his kingdom being taken from him by Absalom. And at the end of his life, David also sinned again by taking a census of the land of Israel, which God had strictly forbidden the kings from doing. 
So it's not that we look to David as some sort of example of what perfection, what perfect faithfulness looks like. But the truth is, not only did Saul sin, and not only has David sinned and been unfaithful, but we too have sinned and been unfaithful. We too have transgressed God's law. We too at times, as the prophet Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. There's not a person in here who has been perfectly faithful to God. There's not a person in here who's been perfectly faithful to one another. There's not a person in here who, who hasn't rejected God's law, who hasn't rebelled against God, who hasn't broken one of God's commandments. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And left to ourselves, we we all are on likewise a similar downward spiral. Left to ourselves, we are all on the path of destruction that comes from sin. And we see the destruction that came in Saul's life when he rebelled against God. We see the destruction that came in David's life when he rebelled against God. But have you seen the destruction in your own life from your sin? Have you seen the wages of sin that is death? Have you seen it in your own life? Have you seen the downward spiral that sin produces? I believe we all have. I believe we've all seen that fruit at one point or another bear its ugly head in our lives. And left to ourselves, we likewise are on a similar path of destruction. None of us have been faithful unto God. But there is one. There is one. A king above all kings who has been perfectly faithful. There is one who who never broke covenant with God. There is one who has always been faithful. There is one who perfectly submitted his life to God. And so I want to draw your attention not to David's perfection, because he doesn't have it. I don't want to just draw your attention to your imperfection, which we have in spades, but I want to draw your attention to Christ's perfection. To Christ's perfect keeping of the law. Never once broke one of God's commandments. Lived his life in full submission to the Father and came here Leaving heaven's glory, leaving worship, leaving all that he had, and was born as a man. Born in humility, born to peasants, born in a barn. Lived a life without sin, and then offered his life on the cross to save sinners. He lived a life of perfection for the imperfect. He never once broke God's commandments so that we who have broken God's commandments could be reconciled back to a holy God. And so Christ on the cross 
his perfect obedience, his perfect submission. He sits there, stands there, hangs there as our mediator, as the one who offers his life as a price for our sin, for our unfaithfulness. His perfect obedience, his sinless life, he was the spotless lamb. And where we have failed, Christ is victorious. Where we sinned, Christ obeyed. And I want you to look to Christ. There is no way for us to atone for our own sin in the eyes of a holy God. There is no way for us to clean ourselves up or to make ourselves righteous, our righteousness as filthy rags. But if we will look unto Christ and turn to him in faith, we receive the benefits of his perfect obedience. Credited to our account, justified, just as if I never sinned. So that now through faith in Christ and faith in his work of atonement on the cross, receiving his work and what he did, and I receive it by faith. When God sees me, he doesn't see all of the ways I have been unfaithful to him. But when he sees me, he sees all of the ways his son Jesus was faithful. He sees Christ's perfect obedience. And so now, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, I am welcomed into the family of God as, as if I was Jesus himself. I have access to the Father because I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We need to look unto Christ. Though we were on a downward spiral of sin, he came down and rescued us. He came down and saved us. He came down and just like when Peter cried out, Lord, save me, as he was sinking beneath the waves, just as we were sinking in our sin and cried out, Lord, save me, he has placed us. He has pulled us out of sin and out of darkness and placed our feet on solid ground so that our lives are no longer headed for destruction, but now we have through Jesus life and life more abundantly. Through his perfect obedience, through his perfect work, we need to look unto Christ. We need to meditate upon his work and meditate upon his faithfulness. And you know what this will produce in us? As we think about him and we think about how he obeyed God and we think about how he did it for us and we think about how he was faithful to God. You know what that does in us? It produces the same thing in us. It produces that same will to obey God and to be faithful to God and to be faithful to others. It produces that in us. You can't meditate upon Christ and, and his obedience and, and what he did and how he laid down his life. You cannot meditate upon that and then get up from that and say, well, I'm just going to go live a life of sin now. I'm just going to go transgress. I'm just going to go break God's commandments. No, when you meditate upon Christ, it produces you in your heart the same desire that he had. 
to live a faithful life in submission to God. And so meditate upon Christ. Meditate upon his faithfulness. Look to Jesus. Don't become distracted by all of the things that are vying for our attention today. But spend time thinking on, dwelling on, meditating on Christ. And Christ, not only was he faithful to God in obeying his commandments, but hear this, Christ is also faithful to us. He's faithful to the word that he has made to us. He's faithful to give us life and life eternal. He is faithful, he is just and faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. David was faithful to Jonathan, and David and Jonathan kept their word to one another, which shows us an example of human faithfulness. But how much more will Christ be faithful to his people, fulfilling all of his promises? Christ is faithful to us as well. And we can take comfort in the fact that we serve the faithful God that he is faithful and he is faithful to his people. And so again, in the story, we see the example. We, we, we see those who were faithful and lived their lives in submission to God and those who were unfaithful and their lives were on a downward spiral. The question that is before us is, have we looked to Christ for forgiveness of sin? Have we embraced his work of faithfulness for us? Or are we still trying to live a, a life of halfway in and halfway another, of, of, of trying to, to do what we want like Saul and wanting our own way and wanting to live life on our terms and, and constantly disobeying God and, and, and trying to do things the way we want them see, to, to see the, the outcomes that we want for our own glory? Or are we submitted to God and his word and believing upon Christ for our salvation? There really are only two categories. And one path is a path of destruction and the other path is one of eternal life. Which path are you on? Are you on the path of eternal life through Christ or the path of destruction? The good news is that at any point and at any time, by calling out to Jesus in faith, we can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. By asking Jesus to save us, he brings us off that path of destruction to the path of eternal life. And he is faithful to forgive all of our sins. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand with me as we close in prayer tonight. Father, we just thank you, uh, Lord, for your word. God, I pray if there is anyone here tonight who is on that path of destruction, Lord, that your word would arrest their heart. That your Holy Spirit would, would bring conviction in their life and conviction of sin. And that conviction and that brokenness over sin would cause them to look to Christ, the only hope that we have. Lord, for those of us here who have, who have looked to Christ, who have embraced Christ, who have received the, the hope and the salvation and the forgiveness of sins and, and received the perfect work of faithfulness, 
Lord, that we would meditate upon that, that we would fix our eyes upon Christ. And Lord, that through the power of your spirit, that you would produce in our heart the same desire to live and to obey your word, to fulfill your will and all the purpose that you have for us. Lord, as we go out from here tonight, we go out from this place. Lord, we go out wanting to obey you, wanting to serve you, wanting to be the people you've called us to be, not for our glory, but to bring you glory, wanting to be the salt and to be the light that you've called us to be. Lord, this week, give us opportunities to do that, to go out, to be the salt and to be the light. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.